Hello, hello. Welcome to the fifth episode of Is This Too Niche? We're your hosts. I'm Jada. And I'm Zoe. So this week's episode is one that I have been over the moon excited to talk about. We're going to be doing a little mishmashing of feminist and queer history. So we're going to be talking about gender and sexuality throughout history this week. Another reason that this episode is so special is that we are going to be joined by a very special guest, my own learning community. Her name is Nora. Stay tuned. You're going to hear something so interesting and hilarious. It gets insane. It does. Like a roller coaster. Um, Just stay Stay tuned though. Before I get into the episode, I want to mention something very important. Since we're going to be talking about queer history, I thought it would be important to provide some LGBTQ plus resources. So if you go to the link in our description under episode references, there's a database full of places you can donate, yes. places you can check out like anything LGBT related. And also trigger warning for this episode for sexual content, mentions of sexual assault and homophobia and transphobia. Anyways, now that I got that all over with, let's get into the episode. So So I'm going to be talking about gender, women, and queer history, and so gender is a big part of this. And the way that we understand gender in a modern sense is derived from the way that we understood it in prehistoric times and ancient times. Um, Of course, different cultures have produced different understandings of gender, and we'll see that later on in the episode, but the general consensus is that gender shapes our society today, and it very much affects the way that we understand, like, sexuality throughout Mm -hmm. history. You might be familiar with, like, prehistoric men were the hunters and women were the gatherers, all that kind of stuff, which was actually pretty egalitarian but it morphed later into some discrepancies between the genders ancient egypt specifically was known for being slightly more like egalitarian than greece or rome would have been probably still not the best but what can you do anyways we're going to be looking at gender within some of these early cultures first and we're going to start off with ancient egypt and we're going to be doing something slightly differently we're going to be doing jada's corner oh my god kicking it off right at the start she's going to talk about my homegirl hatchet Ugh, love her i I can't believe we're jumping right into Jada's mm-hmm. Corner. This yeah. is so exciting. Yeah, as Zoe said, we're talking about Hatshepsut, but I'm going to take you a little bit before Hatshepsut to Nefertiti. Nefertiti was married to the far- the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of Egypt. His name was Akhenaten, and he actually created a whole new religion, worshipping the sun god Aten. So it was a big change for Egypt, going from the worship of many gods to the worship yeah. of one god. Which is crazy to me because... Egyptian history is pretty much like they believed in the same stuff for like 3,000 years and for this one like how long was it like 19 year period yeah. Akhenaten changed that just like for just a tiny period and yeah it's crazy. literally that one yeah. his only during his time of reigning was when this occurred mm-hmm. and that's insane yeah. many Egyptians blame him for natural disasters plague an economy destroyed by a hastily built capital and lots of bloodshed so he was not the best guy so he was not the best ruler but he did have a wife Nefertiti. Nefertiti was a beloved queen. She was often depicted as an equal to the pharaoh and placed in positions of authority and power that typically only the pharaoh would be in. She was considered to be one of the most powerful women ever to rule over Egypt. Love that for her. Mm -hmm. Now, Nefertiti disappeared from historical records around the 12th year of Akhenaten's rule. There are many theories on why that is. She could have possibly died, one of which is highly likely. It's said that she possibly took the name Neferneferuaden and became a co-regent next to her husband. Akhenaten was then followed by by Smenkare, which some historians suggest could have possibly been another name for Nefertiti. Interesting. Yeah, so she could have been going under some different aliases for her own little authority. Nefertiti's story does not go without precedent. In the 15th century BC, a female named 
Hatshepsut ruled over Egypt. Hatshepsut married King Thutmose II, and after he died, her stepbrother. And after he died, their son Thutmose III came in to rule, but he was so young, and she was like, yeah, no. Like, you're not taking the throne. I'm taking this throne. This is my throne. During this time, it was legal for a pharaoh to be a woman, Mm -hmm. but it went against a few key Egyptian beliefs. First, the pharaoh was believed to be the living embodiment of the male god Horus, which why does that even matter? Be so real. Secondly, disturbing the male pharaoh tradition was considered to be a serious challenge to Mayat, which represented truth, order, and justice that was vital to the Egyptians. So all the cards are being played against her, but nonetheless, Hatshepsut girl lost. The whole, like, every time we talk about a woman on this podcast, on this episode, the moral of the story is literally just that they hate to see a girl boss winning. Like It's so true. No, that's literally it. It's so true. Mm-hmm. As a female ruler, she would try to adapt to the patriarchy of Egypt and sometimes go by the name Mayat Kare and even changed her name to Hatshepsut, the masculine version of Hatshepsut. In Egypt, there was actually no real word for a female in power, like queen. Women only had power when their authority was masked behind another's title, like God's wife. King's sister, king's daughter. Ew. Hatshepsut didn't have a male to obtain authority from, so she redefined herself and used these male titles. Now, we didn't forget about her little son, Thutmus III. Yeah, thumbs down to him, who was her only possible rival to the throne. She never publicly denounced his claim to the throne. She actually made him her ward and claimed to be acting in protection of his right to be king one day. In her early days of regency, she seemed to be a bit defensive about her right to the throne. She was commonly depicted with a royal beard and masculine regalia. At the same time, she was also represented realistically as a short, curvy queen. Period. Which I didn't know. That is such a period. I didn't really know that either. She's an icon. Yeah. I mean, like, imagine during that time, like, you're the queen, like, you get to eat all the food and slay all day. So according to iconography, she was actually mixing typically female and male attributes. Mm -hmm. Her reign was around 21 years. She proved that women can rule just as well as any man. She is considered one of Egypt's greatest pharaohs. She brought wealth to Egypt, opened new trade routes, and built many new architectural sites, including the Mortuary Temple of Hatshepsut, which is a monumental site of her reign today. And you can see it on our Instagram. Yes, you can. Now you must be thinking, whatever happened to little Thutmus III? Should have never let him out of his cage. <laughs> After Hatshepsut died, Thutmus III finally took his claim to the throne, and that little douchebag decided it was a good idea to destroy all documentation mm-hmm. of Hatshepsut's reign. Yeah. He defaced her monuments and erased her name from the list of kings. Obviously, he didn't do it well enough because here I am talking about her today. Bite Period. that. So I also have a few words about Hatshepsut because I love her. And, so much. Um, This is open to interpretation, and there's obviously no right or wrong answer because this happened thousands of years ago but a lot of people have theories that Hatshepsut was an early example of gender nonconformity and like gender queerness I personally don't know I don't think anyone really does I have a theory okay yeah my theory is that she was defending her right yeah. to the throne yeah. and she maybe possibly tried if she believed into the god in the gods that like mayat who was like the literal defic- definition of authority and pride and was meant to be what everyone like wanted in egypt and you could only be male for that i maybe she was trying to trick the gods yeah. i don't know that's my theory. yeah i i think a lot of evidence points towards 
she needed to present as male to legitimize herself yeah however like in terms of egyptology there is a lot of transphobia in the study of her just because yeah. people refuse to even acknowledge the possibility of that and i think no, it's yeah. important to consider it oh absolutely either way i'm gonna read a quote from makingqueerhistory.com cis heterosexual historians have considered everything from a military crisis to divine injunction from Amun himself as the catalyst for Hatshepsut's transformation. And yet they continue to dance around the possibility of her queerness because they don't understand it. So desperate are they to claim her as another straight cisgender woman, just like them, that they ignore the writing quite literally on the walls. This is was an interesting point to me. I've It resonates a lot, but at the same time, as I'm going to get into, understanding understandings of gender and sexuality in the ancient times, and even up until very recently, were not at all what we understand gender yeah. and sexuality as. So it's hard to say either way yeah in all likelihood she probably just was a female queen who needed to legitimize herself and her power but it's still an interesting theory to oh absolutely delve into let's jump a few hundred years later to a much more recognizable egyptian queen cleopatra herself i'm here to tear down your worldview about her because she and I are for lifers. I love this woman and people don't really understand her. So she ruled at a point that was so late in Egyptian history that she herself and a good amount of the rulers before her weren't actually Egyptian. She was part of the Ptolemaic dynasty, a clan of Macedonian Greeks who had taken over the Egyptian empire. Funnily enough, the people in this dynasty had a really cool and quirky and creative way of naming each other. Literally every man or woman either took the name Ptolemy or Cleopatra. Like Really? Everyone in this family had the same name. Everyone. And they were all married to each other and just Cleopatra going Cleopatra 1? Cleopatra 2? Literally. Like, Cleopatra's mom. Cleopatra. Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, that makes things really convenient. Imagine, like, table talks. <laughs> <laughs> Cleopatra, could you pass the salt? Wh- which <laughs> one? So, she took the throne at 18 with her 10-year-old brother. Can you guess his name? Ptolemy. Tom- yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, her brother and father had some beef. This beef eventually like encompassed Rome. He was beefing with Pompey of Rome, and Cleopatra was caught in the crossfire. Her brother drove her to become a fugitive, waging a war against her. To protect herself and regain her throne, she took advantage of what was going on in Rome. She sought after Julius Caesar, bore his child, and used his political and military prowess to reclaim the throne, take it away from stupid old 10-year-old Ptolemy. I don't know how old he was at this point, but she reigned as a very successful and effective leader before we get into the next chunk of her amazing adventurous life i want to say something every modern depiction yes of i was gonna say this too is so overwhelmingly over sexualized that's what i was She's gonna say supposed to be this like scandalous sex symbol like a concubine yeah she was not in any way shape or form what we would like to think of her as because of the whole ptolemy clan she would have been so far inbred that like it would have just been rough to look at her if i can put it as nicely as possible she would not have been able to woo over anyone or get anywhere with her looks and i'm saying this from a place of love (laughs) self-love and beauty standards blah 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 cleopatra did not fit those standards That's okay, though, because that means that she would have had to be incredibly smart to get to where she got, which I think is kind of cooler. Iconic. Yeah. Um, There's actually a few stories of how she seducted 
Mark Antony, who was the next topic of this story. One of which is that like she hid herself in a rolled up rug and like snuck into his chambers and was like, "Hey, <laughs> rolled out." Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's true, but I thought I it's, one for the dramatics. For, yes, yes. She did, however, in coming over to Rome to hook up with Mark Antony, who was a at the time a rival to Octavian, who would become Augustus Caesar. She needed to take advantage of Mark Antony, so she made a big deal of going over to Rome. Like she came over on a ship filled with gold like everyone in rome could see her coming in it was like a whole procession and then she walked right up to mark anthony and was like hey let's hook up (laughs) and so they did and their relationship was very publicized and the romans hated this because they did not like women and they were like she can't be like she shouldn't go out in public she shouldn't be with mark antony like they're this isn't roman like this is not what we want to see like women were not they didn't like them so you could say that my girl cleopatra and mark antony were the villain hillary of the roman era (laughs) that's like the worst analogy ever but it's not inaccurate But it's hard to say if they were really like four lifers or if it was more of like a political thing. Yeah, yeah. But they do, they did use their relationship to get far politically in both of their realms until Octavian took advantage of his beef with Antony and his, he took advantage of the fact that the Romans hated women. He was like, if you guys hate women, I'm your guy. (laughs) And if you're familiar with either Night at the Museum or Percy Jackson, (laughs) you might recognize the name Octavian. Just want to throw that out there. I have to make a Percy Jackson reference. Yeah, like every, every single episode. episode. Like, it's it's just becoming my thing. Octavian rallied the Roman people, and he turned the attention away from the civil war that was going on in Rome to declaring war on Cleopatra. She was having a bit of a hard time, and at the Battle of Actium, she lost. And she knew that Octavian was not going to let her surrender. She, he was going to kill her and parade her body around Rome and be like, look at me, this is my male victory over a woman and over over her dynasty, blah, 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 blah. Um, so she took matters into her own hands. There's a lot of rumors about how she did this, but the story is that she killed herself, Mm. which is very unfortunate. It sucks that that's the way that she had to go out in order to protect herself and her image. Yeah. But it is very cathartic to think of her doing that and not being, not becoming a symbol of Octavian's like male superiority, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Iconic. Yeah. So moving on the Greeks are we going to talk about because they're kind of all over the place. They had a very interesting view of gender and it very much affects the way that we view gender today. When Athens became a democracy, they extended the concept of citizenship to include virtually any Greek man. Before this, it was pretty much like only the aristocrats were like true citizens. There was always a very big distinction between men and women in Greek society, you can see like men are often depicted as nude or from early on because it's like heroic, but women are very often covered up. And even when statuary starts to get a little more scandalous, a little more erotic, yeah, women are still wearing clothes. They just kind of have that like wet t-shirt effect. If you've seen like, yeah, yeah. you know, those, those statues, but it was still very much like women weren't really supposed to be seen outside the house. There was even a point in architectural history where houses were built specifically so that while men were having their little banquets women like the yeah the houses were built so that women could move around the house without literally without passing the doorway of where the banquet was taking place because women couldn't be seen within her own home by other men interesting yeah. i mean i wish because yeah. i could avoid no all crowds, i would love to be a hermit not surprisingly women were very over sexualized and also treated as objects and we see this a lot in art 
from this time during the persian wars between greece and persia a lot of the stuff happening politically was present in art and a big motif was that you would see like theseus who is like representative of athens destroying amazon warriors and amazon amazonian warriors if you know are female warriors and they're meant to represent the persians and by having them be female it's saying they might be they might be able to fight but since they're women they are just not as good as us and we're going to be triumphant so it's and then it gets worse too because other times we see a real frequent theme in myth and vase painting is rape and it's like a symbol of heroism if like a uh, yeah if a hero rapes or abducts a woman he is elevated to hero status we can see a vase of cassandra being taken from troy about to you know undergo that yeah on that note Let's talk about Medusa, because I talked about her a few weeks ago, but I want to get into her actual story because she's a girl boss and does not deserve what happened to her. Mm -hmm. She is known as a snake-haired gorgon who could turn men into stone, and she was slain by Perseus or... By Logan Lerman <laughs> and his little iPod Touch. If you <laughs> if you watched that atrocious movie, that was the only good part. What most people don't know is that Medusa was not originally a Gorgon. She was a priestess of Athena. Part of that faith was that she had to be celibate. Unfortunately, Poseidon ew, couldn't keep it in his pants. And he raped Medusa out of spite for Athena because they were beefing. And this technically, by like the laws of the gods or whatever, made Medusa... Poseidon's wife. Horrible. Oh my god, that just opened up like a new world for a Percy Jackson for me. Yeah, horrible. Instead of seeing it as what happened, Athena got mad that her priestess was no longer celibate and turned her into a gorgon where she turned men into stone. So Medusa, by like turning men into stone, it's a very like defense mechanism you know yeah and she is a a testament to feminine rage and like protecting yourself so my last little thing about greece a lot of people misunderstand greek sexuality because we kind of are just like oh greek culture was overwhelmingly homosexual like you know blah blah blah. i hate to burst everyone's bubble it wasn't really it wasn't in the sense of what we would think homoerotic yes you could say but like homosexual and homosocial relationships were not what they are today. Greek understandings of just sexuality in general don't resemble what we understand them as. And of course there are exceptions. I'm going to be talking about Sappho later. Mm -hmm. And that's a completely different story. But sexuality between men was a big part of Greek culture. When I mentioned that Athens became a democracy and extended citizenship to all men, that's what I want to be talking about right now. Because sex between men was more of a marker of status and dominance than an act of love and affection and it was something that was very common in greek society like homosexual sex however and i want to try to refrain from being too graphic here men who had sex with other men could sometimes be considered womanly if they were the passive participant yeah and obviously to be a woman is like the worst thing that you could have been in greek culture especially since women weren't citizens but pretty much all men were like you didn't want to not be a citizen right yeah so older men would take on the dominant role and that would be a marker of their status and it would assert their masculinity younger men often minors would take on that passive role so that it wasn't a violation of their citizenship because you weren't a citizen until you were an adult oh okay so that makes it okay yeah no (laughs) i'm just kidding 
very very interesting and it definitely you'll see throughout this i'm gonna repeat this a lot but this shapes so much of queer history and even queerness today like it's it's everywhere like you can see it i want to talk about a little bit of a more positive aspect of sexuality in greece and that is my favorite poet in the world i mean i haven't really read any of her stuff because it doesn't exist anymore <laughs> sappho she's from the island of lesbos it's one of the earliest examples of women loving women and so we're gonna talk about her she if you listen to girl in red you probably are like aware of who she is but if you're not if you don't listen to girl in red then you're about to hear a lot about her and she's so cool so she was an archaic poet we don't know a lot about her life and what we do know comes from fragments of poems and biographies even mythology she was a teacher a cult leader she performed her poetry to her students and to her colleagues and had like a gathering of female poets that she would talk to and teach she supposedly and this is what i mean by mythology died by throwing herself off of a cliff because of a fairy man who like didn't love her i guess but there's no proof that this guy existed the only like myth about this comes from hundreds of years after sappho's actual death so it seems like this is more of an attempt to be like yeah she was heteronormative stop she was not she has been recognized as a lesbian icon and hence the reason why the term sapphic refers to women loving women unfortunately a lot of her poetry has been heterosexualized and reworded to a male audience like her poem ode to aphrodite which in the name itself is very clearly sapphic but it's been turned into a poem about a man even though originally it was not about a man interesting so. One of her most poignant lyrics comes from a fragment of a poem called Six Fragments for Athos, and it reads, Someone I tell you will remember us, even in another time. And I think that kind of speaks to a lot. Mm -hmm. It has been a beacon of, like, queerness and erasure in history. So let's jump a little bit to closer to the modern age. In the early 20th century, Paris actually became a, like, lesbian capital city. The city of love. Yeah. And the term sapphic began to refer to queer women in the 1890s. And at the same time, there was a community of lesbians in Paris who basically worshipped Sappho. And they gathered together and found, like, sought companionship because of their identities. They looked at Sappho as evidence that, like, lesbians and queerness has always existed. They saw her. Yeah. They saw her as a confirmation of their identities. And that's adorable. Yeah, I love it. And they were led, technically, they said that they were led by Sappho herself, but officially they were led by a woman named Natalie Barney, who is actually from Dayton. Oh my gosh, So yeah. cool. Right next to my hometown. Yeah. And she and other lesbians lived by this, a set of rules of, like, nonconformity. They abandoned any ties to their families, their children, their husbands. They developed their li- they devoted their lives to writing, dancing, composing, etc. So cool. If Please, 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 if you don't, if you don't look at Instagram for anything else, go for this picture. There's a picture of her and her little lesbian friends dressed up in togas and dancing in honor of Sappho. And this is actually referred to as the Sappho look. They would literally like don togas and chitons and like Greek clothing and be like, we're lesbians. Suck it up. It's so cute. It's actually so cute. It's great. (laughs) Okay. Last thing about Greece is Alexander the Great. That name, obviously, everyone recognizes it. I'm not going to talk too much about him. Yeah. Again, Greeks did not view sexuality in the way that he did, but he was likely a little bit romantically involved with his bestie. Oh, okay. Hephaestion. There are many instances of the two being a little more than friends, if you know what I mean. And when Hephaestion died, Alexander demanded that the entire Greek empire enter a state of mourning. He banned music. He destroyed statues, which is crazy. It's like, could be blasphemous. Yeah. And... 
I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'm reading into this as a little bit more than a bromance. Oh, yeah. Even know? that picture yeah. on their Instagram. Yeah. Of course, it's Sus. not. Yeah. Of course, it's not like necessarily. He wouldn't be defined as a gay man. He had a wife. He had children. He had concubines. But you can't tell me he was straight based on that evidence. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Middle Ages. We're going to talk about the Middle Ages. The people of medieval Europe, they got their understanding of gender and sexuality from the Greco-Roman world. They viewed gender in terms of sexual activity rather than biology or identity again the active partner would be the masculine one and the passive partner was more feminine in rome homosexuality was pretty much accepted i mean if you were like a high-ranking man you would have to be a dominant partner otherwise you would be you, it would interfere with the social strata but when constantine was like we're gonna make christianity the official religion of rome things got a little messy and in the middle ages the church considered sodomy a mortal sin. Homosexual relationships were heavily looked down and punished, especially between men. It was a little bit more lenient in terms of, like, lesbians because no one understood women or sex at that time. And still, during this time, sex between men was pretty common in monasteries and also evidence of transgender or gender non-conforming activity took place in these in these places. A Saint Eugenios was born and assigned female at birth, but presented as a male monk, and this was actually a very common occurrence. And on the topic of queer activity going on in monastic or religious settings, I'm going to introduce our guest and sit tight for a very interesting story. I'm going to hand it over to my learning community leader, Nora. She's going to talk about something lesbian nuns, I think. Go for it. Hi, I'm Nora. I am a double major in history, outdoor rec, and education with a minor in art history and a certificate in women, gender, and sexuality Slay. studies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a learning community leader. I'm the president of the History Association. I, this past year, worked on a team that created a black history tour for campus. I like to be involved. I like to do lots of little things. It's very fun. Love. A fun fact, maybe? My favorite color is purple or pink or anything sparkly. Okay. That's my fun fact. Well, I'm totally, okay, I'm gonna preface before I start talking about this. These are very Italian, medieval to early Renaissance <laughs> Italian names. <laughs> I will butcher them. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna talk about this lovely lady named Benedetta Carlini. So basically this takes place kind of in the 1500s. She was born in 1590. And this is a time where you're either married to a man or you're married to the church mm-hmm. or you're a spinster <laughs> because women can't exist outside of the societal order. You can't exist outside of a man because mm-hmm. you're too stupid, you yeah. know? That's just, you're a woman. What are you doing? <laughs> Stop. They yeah. hate to see a girl boss winning. Yeah. yeah. And so, basically, her whole name literally means blessing because she wasn't expected to happen. She was like a little <laughs> Jesus miracle baby. So her dad was like, since you're here, I'm going to devote you to the church your whole life. You don't even get a choice. Ew. Yeah. So she's devoted to the church. But ever since the beginning, she, like, grew up in, like, rural, like, think, like, French countryside. Little cottage core moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And she, like, had always had this, like, special connection to the outside world and, like, nature and stuff like that. And, you know, in discussing, like, the sainthood and people who are, like, deemed as saints in like the Catholic religion, these are one, this is one of the early signs that someone like is going to be a saint Mm -hmm. because they have like this special like childhood wonder and connection to God's creatures or whatever, you know? 
And one of my favorite parts of her story is that when she was younger, this was like, she could control the birds. And basically, okay, like... Okay, Snow White. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> but this, <laughs> this lovely lady, she was singing outside, like doing her little cottagecore, imagine a basket, imagine roses, just singing. And this nightingale starts singing with her. And she literally commands the bird to stop. <laughs> what? <laughs> she said, this Shut is a solo. This is not a duet. This is my <laughs> moment. Yeah. And she's like, stop. And the bird did. So then she's like, yeah, basically, I'm connected to God. Yeah. I can control No, I would God's come creatures. to that conclusion too, I think. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> like, naturally. <laughs> so that was, like, one of her early signs. So, like, she keeps growing. Obviously, you can't stop that. <laughs> and she goes through childhood. Then she's, like, around, like, 15 I want to say because this is kind of around the time where like you're gonna get married or you're going into a nunnery and since her dad had already decided you are living for God that's it she just goes straight to the nunnery which is interesting because at this time since so many people were experiencing poverty that they were trying to ship everyone off to the nunneries because they didn't have enough money to like create dowry and sell sell their daughters basically yeah. because marriage at this point is is literally Financial. just an economic yeah. transaction yeah. yeah exactly women are objects right like, property so you actually had to have more money to get into a nunnery so her dad's like of pretty high standing he's like upper middle class if we want to say today terms and so then he gets her into the nunnery and what's unique about her is that she has actually had a religious education since like forever because her dad was like so obsessed with her that he was like unusually involved in her upbringing because usually it's just like the mom and she's just like oh la 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 I take care of the kids whatever yeah and but her dad was like no we're gonna learn and so then he did and then she did and then she's in the nunnery and okay so shit gets crazy when okay. she's in the nunnery but I want to preface though that like during this time culture is like extremely fallow centric yeah like Everything's penises, everything's men, that's it. So lesbianism and like the whole concept of it, it just literally didn't exist. Yeah, they didn't believe that like women could enjoy sex. Yeah, so exactly. So they couldn't enjoy it together, obviously. Because women right. are objects. Yes. Yeah, and then also the idea of natural and unnatural sex. Mm -hmm. The idea is for natural sex to exist, it's gotta be a man and a woman and you gotta have penetration. And no one was thinking about other objects as penetration. So they're like, how can girls even have sex? That doesn't work. That's my little preface that okay. lesbianism, I'm gonna use that word for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. literally didn't it exist. It wouldn't in have been century. defined as that. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, not even a little bit. She gets to the nunnery and basically she's like, almost, we know now, like underlying, she was in search for power. She wanted individual power, she wanted some some kind of influence over her life and the lives around her. But to her, she's like, oh, my connection with God. Obviously, this has got to mean something. So, so she goes up to the abbess and the father superior and was like, hey, I'm having visions. And they're like, oh? Because one of the signs to mark someone as a saint is that they have visions. Yeah. And so she's like, yeah, every time I pray and when I'm asleep, I have like these intense visions of Jesus guiding me up a mountain and he's telling me that all these animals are the devil and not to look at them. Trust me to go up the mountain. She goes into like intense detail. And so they're like, oh shit, okay, so like this is something worth looking into. So then they keep an eye on her and they're like, okay, whatever. So she starts having these like fits during prayer time. So they're like all like praying like la 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 to the Virgin Mary, whatever. And then she just is like hitting the ground, just like <laughs> dreaming. Just and people are like, what? 
is going on here? But basically, throughout all of her visions, the main theme was that the spiritual world was completely superior to the material world. So the next sign that comes out of it is that she had something called a stigmata, which is basically in the Catholic religion, like a mark of sainthood because you get the same wounds as Jesus did. So like there's like holes in the mm-hmm. palms, holes in the feet, um, a slash in the ribs, and then like prick marks from the crown of thorns. And so she starts getting these, she starts bleeding. So because she was having little visions, she gets assigned a companion. And usually in the nunneries, like everyone's kept separate because obviously if you can, you know, fondle and finagle all your fellow nuns, you're not really married to God, are you? So they're supposed to be kept separate, but she gets a companion to watch over her because of her like intense visions. And her companion's name is Bartolomea Crivelli. So I'm gonna call her Barty. Barty is her little companion and she's sharing a room with her. And it's the middle of the night. And she says, all of a sudden, Benedetta is in the shape of a cross and is glowing red. (laughs) And this companion person, Barty, my love, is going to be an important character. Okay. (laughs) So she's like, this bitch is glowing red, like levitating off the bed. And when she like finally wakes Benedetta up, she's like, oh my God, it happened, but hearted, Jesus, whatever. So basically, while she was sleeping, Jesus came down to her, reached his hand inside of her rib cage. What the hell? Ripped her heart out and replaced it with his heart. What the hell? Bagels. <laughs> I mean, it's a sign of being a saint. It's called the Sacred Heart. <laughs> So then she has this like giant gash on the side. And so everyone's like believing her. And so then everyone's kind of like, whoa, something's going on here. So then this bitch literally is like, Jesus told me we have to get married now since he's been inside. So she's like, obviously we gotta get married. And everyone else is kind of like, okay. Cause she's the only one who can see that shit. So everyone else is just going along with it. They're like, uh, all right. So she is planning this whole huge wedding. Everyone has to be dressed up as angels. There's got to be decorations. No one else can see Jesus. It gets crazier. You have no idea. (laughs) This is literally just the tip of the iceberg. So they're planning the wedding. And this raises a few flags that she's planning such like a huge wedding because they're like, that's a little self-centered of you. That's not very modest Virgin Mary of you. Like, are you seeking attention? Like, no shit she's seeking attention. (laughs) Like, what? Me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I often get just married to Jesus. Yeah, he just roasts my heart out every other yeah. day. Oh yeah. But basically, so this raises a couple of flags, but the, the wedding goes on. The wedding goes on. And <laughs> people are like standing there for the ceremony and she's like fully immersed getting married to Jesus. And everyone else is just kind of like standing around because <laughs> they can't see what's going on. So the wedding's over and she's like doing her thing. And because of the red flags that were raised at the wedding, the church sent some people over to like assess her, to like really see like, is this saintlyhood or is she possessed by the devil, mm-hmm. right? And so they're assessing her and like she passes with flying colors. And she even says like- <laughs> <laughs> What does that test look like? <laughs> Like, it's basically, like, they quiz her on her vision. 
questions. They're like, well, so what happens here? And she has to answer the questions like perfectly or else they're like, no, <laughs> no, they're making it up. Yeah, literally, <laughs> the devil is inside you. And so she passes all of her first tests and eventually she works her way up because she's become like a local legend now. She is a saint in this like nunnery, in this community. And so she like works her way up to the head nun and she's like the abbess. And so she's working and she's doing whatever. Well, homegirl is having some lesbian sex. <laughs> <laughs> she may be the abbess, but she is getting down and dirty. She is getting down and dirty. Down and dirty during prayer time, mind you. What? So this woman, this woman, let me tell you. <laughs> she is just going to town. And do we remember our little companion? Yeah. Barty. Our little Barty? Barty? Yeah. Homegirl's getting railed. They're like, you know, how do you say no to this saint, the abbess? She's she has she Jesus inside of her. Like, yeah. Well, who not wouldn't? only is Jesus inside of her, but you know why this sex was okay? It was because she's not really having sex with her. Because Benedetta is possessed by an angel, and that angel's a man. So Barty's really having sex with a man. That's exactly what she said. She said it's okay. It's okay. It's not a sin because you're having natural sex with a man. Because I, I am an angel right now. I am the angel, and we're having sex. So then it started to become more frequent. Like she'd be calling her in during prayer. Time. Time, all the time just in her office because she was the abbess yeah. like she was the head nun <laughs> and she was just like yep booty calling all the time <laughs> literally all the time what? and so then Barty's like something doesn't feel quite right about this and <laughs> apparently Benedetta's like a bitch like she is so full of herself that she like just starts berating all the other nuns because she's like you're not good enough what are you doing for the church huh what are you doing for this nunnery look what I'm doing I'm a saint what are you doing literally holding them to this like impossible standard and so like 10 15 years go by like years she's just doing all this over and over she's going crazy she's got the angel inside her she's got jesus's heart whatever she's got his hand in marriage and so 15 years pass right everyone's getting fed up with it they're like something is not right here but they didn't really want to call her out on it because the people like truly believed that she had the fate of their community in her hand like if they killed her they're probably gonna like you know die of the plague. Smited by God. Yeah. <laughs> Be disowned from heaven, just like <laughs> by burning purgatory, I guess. So then people are kind of getting like, okay, this is a little bit enough of this. So they, someone like kind of sends a little sneaky letter to the church, to the Pope. And they're like, guys, I don't, I don't think this is it. <laughs> I don't think she's real. And so they send more people to test her again. And so they're testing her and they're kind of like, okay, I mean, she seems pretty like fine. Like this is kind of weird. And then Barty's like, yeah, we have sex on the regular. And these guys from the church were like, women? <laughs> yeah. Um, women do things? Two girls? What does that mean? <laughs> go back to the kitchen. Yeah. So they didn't even know how to <laughs> more like go back to the nunnery. Yeah, like, <laughs> go to your rooms. <laughs> but like they didn't even know how to like assess this they were like is it a crime what they don't even know because like first of all she claims she's a man and who are they to argue with god and then also <laughs> women have sex no no <laughs> right doesn't say anything about that women can't think no. or have desires of their own and the understanding of the female body right now is insane literally like doctors at this point in time think that a woman's uterus travels around her body in search for sex the idea it's just the woman's body is not consistent conceptualized even a little bit at all so they're like going into it and they just keep catching her on these little slip-ups so they're like oh well that's not quite right 
And then they find out that, cause Barty is a rat. Homegirl snitch. They find out that Benedetta is freaking her wounds every morning so that they're fresh. She's literally giving herself wounds oh to my be God. the bride of Jesus for 15 years. Dedication. Literally. Literally. <laughs> so then they're like, okay, this is not it. And Benedetta knows that her time is like coming to an end. So she's like, watch this. I'm going to die and come back to life. <laughs> Yeah, she, she's like, let me pull out this one. Yeah, what? <laughs> Literally fakes her own death. Fakes her own death. Gets laid back in the backyard in the nunnery. In the ground. And then comes back to life. <laughs> Shut up. Literally fakes her own resurrection. And she's like, I can't even put it past her. I would do that for a Yeah, honestly, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> This is iconic. Yeah, I mean, in a society where you are perpetually ignored and an object, I mean, go big What's or go home. Yeah, you know, you have babe. some fun. Yeah, we yeah. get a little attention here. <laughs> she knows what she's doing. So, yeah, so then she fakes her own resurrection. And everyone's just kind of like, what the fuck? And they're like, you know you didn't, we know you didn't die. And she was like, didn't you just see me in the yard? <laughs> like, I was in the ground, I was in the dirt. Like, I died. Nope. They're like, we know you didn't die. We have evidence. This woman, (laughs) she does what any woman should do in this situation. And she pulls the woman card. She goes, oh, I guess you're right. I think maybe I I was just confused. I think I thought it was God, but it must have just been the devil. And my little woman mind couldn't tell the difference. And I'm sorry. And they're like, oh, well, you're just a woman. (laughs) You you wouldn't know. Women are so stupid and puny brains. So then homegirls just on house arrest for like ever. (laughs) They're just like, okay. And dismiss the whole thing. And so, but she says, she says before she leaves the nunnery, she's like, you know, because of this, this community, downfall. You're all gonna die. And literally two years after she dies, and this could be a mark of sainthood, or it could literally be because the plague was taking over the country. The whole town succumbs to the plague, and over like 75% of the population dies, and they're all just dead. And you know that community was like, she called it, she told us, she told us, and now we're dying. But yeah, and so that's the story of Benedetta Carlini. That's so interesting. That was a roller coaster. Right? That was crazy. It just, I was reading this. It's in a book called Immodest Acts. Okay. And oh my God, it's a phenomenal story. And there's so many more details that I couldn't even like begin to like describe. But it's insane. Awesome. I actually thought I was going to cry for (laughs) that. It's scary. It's like, no, yeah. Oh my God, what? Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Oh I my god. So but, thanks for um, having actually, me. Actually, yeah. thank you so much. You're our first ever guest. <laughs> oh my yeah. god, I'm so honored. And you're invited back anytime you Literally, want. Literally, yeah. Literally, I have so many little niche stories that I love Slay. to talk about. Well, that's the name of the podcast. Yeah. Is this too niche? So yeah. Oh perfect. my god, I love that. One of my other favorite stories is the Pirate Pope. So. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. We were just talking about doing a pirate. Yeah, we're, we are talking about pirates in this episode. But, but yeah. I yeah. love pirates. Yeah. That's awesome. We're talking about everything everything in this episode as it's, you should we're going in as you should yeah <laughs> but thank you so much yeah thank that was you so much so fun much. yeah
we're gonna take a look at gender nonconformity, and if we talk about this we have to talk about Joan of Arc of and this is a complicated topic from a personal standpoint I don't necessarily think that she was queer unfortunately at least not in the terms that we would consider it today but I don't reject the possibility that she was gender nonconforming we can't really place labels on her identity because we don't understand the way gender was understood in her time but we also don't know her own personal like thoughts and feelings and identities so. yeah of course However, I talked about on our fairy tale episode about how she was burned for cross-dressing and she was actually very highly religious. She fought for France because she supposedly saw visions that telling her to do that. And she also claimed that God wanted her to cross-dress specifically. Maybe this was a lie that she said so that she could protect herself because cross-dressing was a good way to protect yourself as a woman at that time. But her act of cross-dressing and blatant refusal to follow religious doctrine that outlawed cross-dressing does kind of place her in the category of a queer icon just because gender nonconformity at this time didn't really exist mm -hmm. so she set a standard in some ways she kind of fought some binary standards going on at the time as we've reached the renaissance i'm going to talk about a few artists who definitely had some things going on <laughs> for them we have two men and one woman to talk about and we're going to start it off with michelangelo oh my gosh i've never heard of him he's a little bit underground I yeah don't know, he is like, underground you, you probably you, never heard of yeah. him yeah Probably. He's, he actually is underground. He's in the sewers. So Anyways, his sexuality is, is loud and clear in a lot of his life and work. He notoriously had beef with the Pope and with the church, but he was employed as their chief artist, so they couldn't really do a lot about it. He was very private and tormented in his life. He burned a lot of his sketches towards the end of his life, but modern historians can identify that he was queer from a mile away. In Florence, actually, homosexuality was a little bit more accepted than it was within the church. A lot of Michelangelo's contemporaries like Da Vinci or Botticelli were arrested for sodomy at some point. So, you know, just guys being dudes. Michelangelo notoriously was obsessed with the male figure. If you just like browse his catalog of oh works my God, and you'll yeah. see it. And so much so that his rendering of the female body was not great mm -hmm. it wasn't very accurate especially for the time he uh, he makes them appear overwhelmingly masculine with very heavy muscles very. the way he w renders breasts specifically just looks so unnatural and like he's never seen a woman <laughs> in his life um so it's you know. true so he likely was in a relationship with a man named cavallari who was a lot younger than michelangelo i will admit but again different time different standards he wrote erotic poems to cavallari and often used him as a model for his works and you can see that he depicted he actually modeled jesus in the last judgment after cavalry and you can see this because his depiction of jesus looks nothing like what you imagine jesus to look like it's it's just like a beefy dude and so in the last judgment also we see a lot of nudity which the church was like ew and a few homosexual couples are squished in there mm -hmm. one martyr holds michelangelo's skin yes which is referring to i believe the way that said martyr died however it hangs down as if falling towards hell and it's reflecting Michelangelo's own concern that he's going to hell because makes sense Caravaggio comes next during the Baroque period and his art is very cool mm -hmm. very moody very emo but he is pretty widely accepted to be gay there's not like quite as much evidence as there is for Michelangelo but he painted a lot of religious allegories however he wasn't the ideal church going medieval European guy he a lot of the stuff he did was very un-Christian like he killed a guy at some point you know mm -hmm. but his paintings can 
can often present challenges to the norms of the church at the time and they are can be interpreted to have queer undertones he might have had a relationship with a man at some point the evidence of this is unclear but his depictions of men come across as very like intimate and lustful mm-hmm especially like Jesus on the cross, like he is serving. I'm sorry, I hate to say it, but his paintings of Jesus, you can you can tell, you know. Other depictions of saints and religious figures seem to have been painted by a man who was into men, you know? Mm-hmm. And he rarely painted women, and when he did, they were all clothed as opposed to very naked men in his works. So it's up to interpretation, but it's clear. Yeah. Lastly, this woman is one of my favorite artists ever. She was actually one of Caravaggio's followers, and her works are honestly kind of cooler than his i'm gonna say it her name is artemisia gentileschi and some background about her she was raped by a man named augustino tassi when she was a young woman and she had to take this to trial and in order to get this man imprisoned she actually had to be interviewed while being tortured which is horrible oh my god but i think it's very important because it's like the idea of a woman suffering and then having to go through more suffering just to prove her case and get justice is typical you know i would like to say that her work as a whole it is not something that we should define entirely by her experiences her experiences of being a victim of rape are definitely influences and you can definitely see that but to reduce her work down just to that is like reducing caravaggio's work down to just him being gay you know Mm -hmm. like it's it's no absolutely there's more dimensionality there absolutely on that note however her experiences like in femininity are very present in her work in Susanna and the elders we see a uh, scene of Susanna who's a victim of rape hiding from men and it's the first time in art history that an allegory is depicted through the eyes of a victim and not the aggressors interesting her most popular work is Judith beheading Holofernes oh yeah and it's a biblical allegory and it's a very strong depiction of feminine rage and vengeance and it shows Judith very graceful and determined and fiercely beheading Holofernes in his bed. It was painted shortly after Gentileschi was raped and this comes across very presently in her work. And there's a very like calm determination and authority about Judith in this piece. Mm -hmm. And it actually, like Judith has some of Gentileschi's features. So you can see how personal this work was. At one point in her career, some of her work was stolen and she is quoted to have said, if I were a man, I can't imagine it would have turned out this way. Moving on, we're going to talk about how other cultures around the world understood gender. So pre-colonial cultures in America specifically had very diverse understandings of gender. And again, it wouldn't necessarily have been looked at as LGBT specifically. Queerness wasn't quite understood in those ways, but native cultures were known to have been a lot more fluid with their understandings of gender. Yeah. And obviously, I don't want to like homogenize native cultures either. It happens to be that when a culture flourishes without the oppressive hand of Christianity, these cultures tend to break the gender binary. So one person I want to talk about from this is a person named Wiwa of the Zuni tribe. She identified as a Lamana, meaning that she was assigned male at birth but presented a woman. Meanwhile, there was also a person named Oshtish of the Crow Nation, and they were a leading bate, which means like a bridge between the male and female gender, and they earned their name for having strong military presence but also being very accomplished in other feminine roles. We also see the same kind of thing happening in Africa. We already talked about ancient Egypt, but I want to talk about how gender fluidity was present in a lot of African cultures. There was even one culture where, or two cultures in the Igbo and the Yoruba tribes Mm -hmm. where gender wasn't assigned at birth. Instead, it was up to the person to determine their identity throughout their lives. Yeah, which I think is really 
really cool. That's how we that should be cool. doing That is cool. That's how a lot of people are trying to yeah. do it nowadays. One of the most interesting people I feel like from this little thing I'm talking about is King Mwanga II of Buganda, modern day Uganda. And it's hard to tell if he was really gay. One source says he was openly gay. Another says he was bisexual. And in all honesty, it's a little bit difficult to tell. What we do know is that sexuality wasn't a big deal in this culture and it wasn't really clearly defined. So he probably was bisexual, but his story is very interesting and it does encompass his sexuality a little bit. So he was the last ruler of Buganda and he took the throne when he was 16 and he was very anti-imperialist as he should be. Yeah. And he had been reported on by a missionary named Alexander McKay who sent rumors to England saying that he was gay and addicted to marijuana and all this (laughs) stuff just to demonize the king. Mwanga took some drastic measures to protect his culture. In 1886, he had 45 Christians killed in a massacre. I am not going to necessarily justify this however if he was a king who saw what christianity had done to the other cultures surrounding him and he needed to take the measures that he did in order to protect his own culture i don't fault him for that yeah so he has been unfortunately depicted as like this evil gay king who killed men for turning away sexual advances when that is very much so not true yeah let's take a look at japan which has a rich history in their understandings of gender and sexuality as well um shintoism and buddhism both kind of accepted different sexualities and viewed sex as a normal desire to be fulfilled instead of demonizing it as christianity would In a similar way that ancient Greece had that kind of younger man, older man dynamic, Japan also had this. It was called Nanshuko. It was basically like sexual mentorship between younger and older men. And again, a little bit weird in, in today's eyes. Yeah but it's part of the history. Mm-hmm. So during the Edo period, we see a rise in the yukioi style of art and the culture associated with this was rebellious, is a good word. They really enjoyed at this time period kabuki theater and kabuki actors were not allowed to be women. That's a long story that I don't want to get into, but <laughs> they were mostly men who cross-dressed and not just in the theater, like in real life too. Interesting. And some practiced homosexuality outside of the theater. Unfortunately, this was put to an end with the Meiji restoration and European influence, but I do want to look at two of my favorite examples of queer people in Japanese history. One of them is named Oda Nobunaga, and he was a famous samurai. And in a similar way to cowboys, which I'm going to be talking about in a minute, samurai culture was very homosexual oriented because it was a lot of men who were on their own for long amounts of time, and they mm-hmm. had to they had to find a way to satisfy themselves some way, you know? So Oda Nobunaga was a bisexual samurai, and he was actually really funny. He has a lot of funny nicknames, and he lived from 1534 to 15. 1882. And one of his nicknames is the Demon King. His other ones are funnier. One of them is called the Fool of Awari, which you might understand in a minute. The other one is just the Big Idiot. He was just the Big Idiot. Oh yeah, the Big Idiot. I don't know. I just thought that was funny. So while he was in Awari, he heard a story about a Loch Ness monster-esque thing he, that lived in like a, a pond. And he was like, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. Like, I'm I'm a man. I'm going to go kill this serpent. Mm-hmm. So he made a bunch of local farmers drain the pond. They, ha- they had a bunch of buckets and he tried to have them drain the pond. And that didn't work, obviously. So at some point, he grabbed a knife and put it in between his teeth and dove into the pond to try to kill this serpent, which didn't exist. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
It was pretty embarrassing for him. No, Maybe it so makes funny. sense about his nicknames, but it's a good thing that after he was unsuccessful, he decided to go home because <laughs> the lord of a nearby castle was so pissed at him that he planned on killing him if if he was going to end up visiting. So, oh you know, he was a really cool samurai, though. Like, he was the reason that you might be familiar with Yasuke. He was a black man who was made into a samurai, which was, like, not something that could really happen in Japan. And then also, he was likely in a bisexual relationship with one of his vassals named Mori Ranmaru, who died in battle. So, we also have Nobuko Yoshia, who is an openly queer writer who lived from 1896 to 1953. And she's known for writing Japanese lesbian fiction. She presented in a very androgynous manner. She had a part partner named Chio Manma and she actually had to adopt Manma so that they could share finances in a way that a married couple would. It's pretty interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. So moving on to, so we're going to talk about pirates and cowboys. These are two very interesting topics I want to get into in the future, but they are also very gay. <laughs> so let's start with pirates, which was a lifestyle built on the rejection of social norms. So on land, sodomy or any form form of like same-sex relationships may have been outlawed not on the seas so <laughs> there was an official term for this it was called matiolage i probably am not pronouncing it right because it's french but it was basically an agreement between a pair of same-sex bunkmates on a pirate ship <laughs> Where they would basically get married, like basically, and share like their wealth. They would fight for each other, and if one of them died, the other one would inherit their wealth. So it's it's very much marriage. Yeah. During the golden age of pirates, we have a few girl bosses <laughs> named Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. I didn't get too into their story because I, this feels this is probably something we'll cover at a later time. Absolutely. But Bonny was in a relationship with a male pirate who led a crew, and at one point, the crew was hunted down and defeated by a pirate hunter. And in this chaos bonnie and reed who were lesbians together would were spared because they both happened to be pregnant unfortunately they met their demise reed died in prison and it's unclear what happened to bonnie but pretty sad ending and i had to mm-hmm. go through that pretty fast but um it's still interesting good to see representation definitely, definitely, yeah. cowboys before i get into this topic i want to put it out there that the gayest of cowboys is one jedediah smith <laughs> Played by Owen Wilson in Night at the Museum. Cinematic masterpiece. A a staple of LGBT representation, you know. So anyways, let's take a look at actual cowboys. Because while doing research, I read an essay discussing Brokeback Mountain Hollywood Cowboy, which is like the idealized version of the American cowboy, which can be directly traced back to a piece of literature called the Leather Stocking Tales. So basically these like hyper-masculine versions of cowboys that we think of today come from this piece of literature but funnily enough this piece of literature is very gay it talks about two male cowboys who shared a home a bed adopt children together like it's very very non-heterosexual so these cowboys in this piece of literature became like masculine folk heroes but it's not entirely untrue that homoeroticism existed in cowboy relationships they were not really lone rangers they would spend a lot of time on the frontier together and rely on one another for connection and survival and often engage in sex together it's again kind of greco 
Roman in the sense that it wouldn't have necessarily been strictly like these people are gay. Some of them, sure. It was just more so a way for people to connect with each other and it just happened to happen in ma very masculine communities, yeah. which is a thing that happens a lot. So we're going to talk about the Victorian era, which you might be surprised. I don't know. If you're familiar with this era, you might not be surprised, but it was a very, it was an era of very pent up queer ideas. And it's very observable in the literature at the time. But first, I want to talk about a few people who set the standard of breaking boundaries. We have Chevalier Diane, who was a French spy. She was assigned male at birth and presented masculine until she transitioned. She showed up at the court of Elizabeth I and demanded that she be recognized by the government as a woman, which wow. is super cool. At this time, men were more punished for homosexuality than women. So a lot of like women got away with lesbianism and bisexuality and stuff than men, which is important to take into consideration. There's actually a woman named Isadora Duncan and she's super cool. She was openly bisexual. She was known as the mother of modern dance. She was publicly opposed to marriage and gender roles and even had two children out of wedlock. And she has a big influence because she was the mother of dance. A lot of her dance pictures are her in like togas, yeah. which might kind of allude to that sapphic yeah. look, which is pretty cool. Now let's talk about literature because a lot of literature from this time is very, very queer. And mm -hmm. this all ties into Oscar Wilde a lot because during his trial, which I'll talk about, his own words and writings were used to criminalize him as a gay man. And so his literature was used against him, which freaked out other gay writers because they were like, oh, they can do this to us. Mm. So first we have Walt Whitman. He published a collection of poems called Leaves of Grass. And at one point, the Calamus sequence was added to his collection and it's considered to be one of the first positive, positive representations of male homosexuality. Bayard Taylor published Joseph and His Friends, A Story of Pennsylvanians, which is considered to be the first queer American novel and it tells a romance between two farmers. Poems and Ballads by Algernon Charles Swinburne was published in 1866 and this one is a little bit questionable. It depicted homoerotic desire between women, which sounds great at first, but it was written by a man for a male audience, which kind of sets the standards of over-sexualizing women-loving women, Yeah, which sucks. Joseph Le Fanu published a vampire lesbian novel called Carmilla and it was published in 1872. It tells the romance between an Austrian teenager and Carmilla and Carmilla actually turned out to be a vampire named Miracella and she has been considered to be the blueprint for the lesbian vampire archetype which I think is super cool. Letters from Laura and Evelyn is a story that tells about two women who went on honeymoons with their respective husbands except there's a lot of dramatic irony because the readers know this but their husbands don't but they are gender queer which is mm. pretty cool. Let's talk about Oscar Wilde. So Oscar Wilde is best known for Picture of Dorian Gray and you can yeah. you can just read that book and get the vibes. They're there. Mm -hmm. He was very good at masking his sexuality because obviously it was a big crime to be gay at that time. However, he became involved in a relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, who had a very homophobic father named the Marquis of Queensbury. And when Queensbury found out about Douglas and Wilde, he harassed Wilde so badly that he had to file suit against Queensbury for libel. However, Queensbury responded by accusing Wilde of sodomy, which couldn't really be rebuted because it was true. Mm -hmm. So the trial was horrible. It was very public, very scandalous, and Wilde was sentenced to two years of hard labor. The physical abuse that he suffered during this time killed him. So, okay. yeah, sucks. Bram Stoker, when he published Dracula, likely was very inspired by the trial because you can read in the in the subtext that Dracula is likely an allegory for, like, homosexuality and, and homosexual urges, and Jonathan Harker is trying to defeat the urges, blah, blah, blah. And when he, like, escapes Dracula and returns to normal society, that's him, like, defeating the urges but it's likely that stoker wrote the 
this out of like internalized homophobia because he was afraid of his own identity during this time where (sighs) wild was being you know condemned but after the victorian era homophobia persisted for many years in many forms but queer revolutionary movements still prevailed in the roaring 20s queer culture took over a lot of sexual freedom was a theme especially like flappers and this was a good opportunity for queer culture harlem and greenwich in new york were hotspots for this activity and beginning in 1869 through the 20s harlem hosted masquerades known as drag balls which provided safe space for gender nonconformity, which is super cool and these places remained like queer hotspots throughout the 20th century in 1953 dwight eisenhower banned homosexuals for working for the federal government in just the year before that the american psychiatric association deemed homosexuality a sociopathic personality disturbance which is nuts and horrible in opposition to things like this gay bars and gay clubs prevailed stonewall inn was one of them you probably recognize this name but it was a place where gender non-conforming people queer people gay people etc found refuge and community but unfortunately they were places like stonewall were subject to police raids and violence so in 1969 the nypd raided stonewall arrested 13 people some of which were just arrested for cross-dressing which was a legitimate thing that they could be arrested for and the people in the bar were fed up and so they waited outside the bar in anger and the police barricaded themselves inside and at one point a police arrested a lesbian and while she was being put in the police car he hit her on the head which sparked anger obviously and that's where the rioting began yeah it is reported that Marsha p johnson threw the first brick that's what we know we're not 100 sure i'm going to talk about her in just a minute but obviously a lot of chaos is going on so accounts of what happened were skewed but she was definitely on the forefront this broke out into a riot and protesters at many occasions tried to break through the barricade and set the bar on fire with the police in it like yeah at the end of the night the riots settled down but for five days following protests continued occurring and exactly one year after stonewall the first pride parade took place which was a new way of protesting because other queer protests were silent vigils with like strict dress codes they were very solemn you know Mm -hmm. so pride was more of a festival a celebration stonewall gives us a good segue to talk about my girl marcia marcia p johnson was a trans woman born in 1945 she presented feminine from a very young age she had to stifle her expression though after she was sexually assaulted but after graduating high school she moved to new york with very little money and fully presented as a woman changed her name and the p in her name actually stands for pay it no mind which was like her motto for her identity she couldn't find work though however because of her identity so she had to put herself in a very dangerous position by taking on sex work she was very often uh subject to violence she was once shot at one point she didn't have a permanent home for much of her life and she made money waitressing or performing drag aside from sex work when she was 17 she met sylvia rivera who was a trans woman who moved to New York at 11 and Marsha took her on as like a mentorship relationship. She taught Rivera how to do makeup, how to protect herself, you know, all this kind of stuff. So Marsha was known for her methods of self-expression. She was often very short of money, so she had to thrift a lot of her wardrobe. She was known for wearing flower crowns and just being very free in her expression and kind and generous. And in 1969, she found herself at Stonewall. It's unclear exactly what she did the night of the Stonewall riot, but she may have thrown a shot glass. She may have climbed a lamppost 
post and dropped a purse into a police car like it's not really clear but it's obvious that she was a very important member of this night and after this she found herself in a role as a queer activist she was very frustrated by the queer revolution movement because it was super white oriented and people of color as well as gender non-conforming people didn't really have much of a voice so in 1970 Marcia and Sylvia formed star which is the street transvestite activist revolutionaries I'd like to note transvestite is not a term that we use anymore to identify yeah. trans people but at this time obviously it was the organization's goal was to provide homes and safety for trans people but they didn't have a lot of money at first they used the back of a truck which housed 24 people but they lost the truck tried to rent an abandoned building and were eventually evicted for not being able to pay rent and despite all of these failures they still remain an important revolutionary group and it gave a voice to people who didn't have a voice beforehand Marsha earned a reputation for the charity and generosity she did within her community she was known as Saint Marsha she was at one point photographed by Andy Warhol for a series called Ladies and Gentlemen but despite all of this she was constantly in danger she was arrested more than a hundred times as a matter of fact and in 1990 she unfortunately contracted AIDS in 1992 her body was found in the Hudson River and was determined to be suicide despite her friends and family saying like it definitely wow. is not yeah really horrible yeah um the police obviously didn't investigate they didn't care the case was reopened in 2012 it still remains unsolved unfortunately but she was such an influence on her community that at her funeral people didn't fit into the church there were so many people there they were spilling out onto the street she was a beautiful person and deserved so much more than what the world gave her but she mm -hmm. was a light in an incredibly dark time for many people and the entire queer community owes a lot to her i'm gonna end the podcast by talking about the aids epidemic which is not a light topic to end it on i apologize but it is very enraging to me the way that it was handled and the damage it did to the lgbtq community and it's something important to talk about so the hiv aids virus entered the u.s in 1969 killing a man in the same year and yet nothing was done it rose to public attention in the 70s and the u.s government made its first public report about the disease in 1981 and it was at first identified as like a specifically gay related disease mm -hmm. uh, which was reported in the new york times i don't know how to put this into light terms but the reason it affected gay men was because it was more easily transmitted during their sexual activity than it would be between like a heterosexual couple it, but it is a misconception that it only affected gay men it yeah. was used to demonize them unfortunately be but and neither the government nor society cared about them very much so they didn't do anything it also affected people who used drugs that they had to inject to use such as like heroin mm -hmm. so since that first government report 700,000 people have died of AIDS which could have been very preventable preventable by 1980 25 states had decriminalized sodomy and queer revolutionists were trying to use this as an opportunity to push for gay marriage but it was heavily stunted by the AIDS epidemic because people saw this happening to gay people and were like we don't want we don't want you to have rights you know gay people advocated for help medical assistance they were ignored Anita Bryant is famous for going on public television and spewing hateful words against gay people claiming to take a moral standpoint she was actually pied in the face on live TV at one point and Ronald Reagan the president of the United States supported the rhetoric that Anita Bryant was saying he didn't acknowledge the disease at all he only first spoke the word AIDS after 12,000 people had already died from it and even after that he still did nothing for the victims groups such as the gay men's health crisis took it upon themselves to provide medical help other groups like act up used to protest and art to convey their message they used the phrase silence equals death very obviously directed at Reagan and by 1995 AIDS was the leading cause of death among men between the ages of 25 and 44. In the same year, an antiviral was developed, which led to a decline in hospitalizations and deaths. But even then, it only took it took until 2003 for George W. Bush to enact the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which is 
just sucks how long that took. Yeah. Many queer artists and activists fought for themselves during this time. Famous people who contracted the disease used it as an opportunity for advocacy. Magic Johnson, who was not gay, contracted the disease and used his diagnosis to actually help the queer community a little bit because it took a little bit of pressure and stigma off of it just happening to gay men. Freddie Mercury, on the other hand, stayed very quiet about having it because he wanted to protect the people around him, obviously, and he didn't publicize it until the day before he died of AIDS. Yeah. Keith Haring, who was known for his like spontaneously drawn cartoonish figures, murals, and pop shops, used his art to convey a lot of messages, including anti-apartheid, safe sex, LGBTQ issues, and AIDS awareness. Mm -hmm. He was diagnosed with AIDS in 1988 and used his art as a form of advocacy. And before he died, he founded the Keith Haring Foundation. Um, He died in 1990, unfortunately. But other fellow artists like Basquiat, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, also advocated for him and, and the things that he stood for. That was a lot of information and it ended on a bit of a depressing note. I apologize for that. I also had to speed through a little bit of that. We ran over the time, (laughs) but we are going to be taking a little hiatus for Thanksgiving break. Yes. So you'll see us back in a few weeks with an episode from Jada. Yes. And again, please check out the links in our description for LGBT organizations. Thank you, Nora, for coming on. Yes, thank you. Have a good Thanksgiving break. Thank you for listening.